Well, welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here tonight. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and grab it? Open it to Genesis chapter 30. And as you're opening, I want to tell you about something else that's going on, and it is a movie that's been released. It's, it's opening in some theaters in Southern California. It's called Voiceless. It is a movie about abortion. It's a movie about the pro-life movement. It's a movie about one man's struggle. He's a war veteran. He moves into a neighborhood where he's doing pastoral ministry, and a clinic opens up across the street from where he is, and so that, that's the backstory. And so he decides that he does want to take a stand, and the movie's about him trying to stand up for life. And uh, I've watched the trailer on it. I've heard some good things about it. An email did go out. A blast went out to the church family about the movie. There's a, uh, a group that has purchased a couple theaters in Redlands, and they've bought the theater, and they would love to fill the theater. So if you'd like to go on Saturday night, and you're not going to go to the 2B1 date night thing, this would be a great thing to go to. So that's voiceless. And check your, uh, if you're on the church app or uh, Sean, an email went out as well. Is it on the app as well? So you can get it either way, okay? So tonight we're in Genesis 30. If you're new to us, welcome. Uh, we go through the Bible verse by verse, and that's what we're going to do again tonight. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 30. The title of the message is Wrestling Sisters. Wrestling Sisters. So I grew up with a sister um, a sister who is 18 months, about 18, 19 months older than me. I never cease to remind her that she's older than me. It's one of the great joys at family get-togethers. But she was very much a tomboy growing up, and so it was almost like having a brother. She's very good in Little League. In fact, as a 12-year-old in Little League, she hit a home run off a guy, who, and he wasn't too happy about it. And Then they, they beamed her afterwards as payback. Not good, but anyway... But um, I grew up with a sister, and, and from time to time, we would get into it because she was, you know, kind of a tomboy. So we'd, sometimes we'd get into it, and anytime we'd ha have a scrap, I'd always feel terrible because she was a girl, after all. And uh, tonight, we're going to look at two sisters, and I guess if you wanted to put a title at the top of your Bible tonight, you could call this an ancient cat fight. So that's what we're looking at tonight. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you for the sound effects there. Appreciate it. <laughs> we're doing a Bible study on Thursdays, and we're going through the book of Exodus, and there's a guy in our group. His name is John, John the Beloved, and he can do a frog really good, and he doesn't even move his lips. He can't even see anything moving. So we're talking about the plague of frogs, and all of a sudden you start hearing rivet, 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 and he does it really well, and people are looking around like, what's going on? Anyway, so sound effects are appreciated, but let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you again that this is such a real chapter. It's every chapter in the Bible seems to tell the story of your overarching grace through all the human frailties and weaknesses that we have, Lord. It's, uh, it's amazing to me that the, the ultimate family, the family of Israel is going to come from this mess tonight. The Messiah will come from this mess. And it shows that you're a God of grace and that you take broken and dysfunctional families and things that are very commonplace in our society and even our own experiences. And, and somehow your grace always rises above them. In Genesis 50, verse 20, you take what's often intended for evil and use it for good. And we're so grateful. And that's a verse we find in the very book that we're studying tonight. And it is our desire, Lord, to set aside every weight, every sin, every... Uh, 
amount, any, any baggage we brought in here tonight, Lord, and focus on your word and what you'd say to us tonight. Not to our neighbor, not to someone we're thinking of, what you would say to us tonight. So give us ears to hear what you would say to us, Father. We lay this time at your feet, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore no children, she became jealous of her sister. Her sister is Leah. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. How do you like that line? Now we heard, we've heard the line in the history of our country, give me freedom or give me death. But I don't know about give me children or give me death. In fact, some of you are thinking, I will give you my children tonight. If that's really what you want, I will at least loan them to you for a couple of weeks, a weekend, whatever. <laughs> Take them. <laughs> but in this culture, we know that it was huge to be able to bear children. And in fact, they tell us that in this particular uh, culture, that if you could not bear children, if you had barrenness, it was seen as a sign of disfavor from God. They almost saw it as something like a curse, that you had done something wrong, and barrenness is a thread that continues to move through the patriarchal family. We could see it in Sarai, uh, Abram's bride. She was barren, and she doesn't even have the child of promise until she's really advanced in age, 90 years old. And we can see it in this thread and, and in these stories and in I think an early question we want to ask is why barrenness? Why does God do this? And sometimes I think God does this because he wants us to depend upon him. And barrenness becomes a metaphor, not just for having children, but it can be that you feel barren spiritually or you're having difficulty in your finances or even you're having difficulty maybe just hanging on in, in life. And Rachel became jealous. She was being really driven nuts by the fact that her uh, older sister, in this case Leah, but the less favored one certainly because we know Rachel was the beautiful one and Leah was kind of the second best and I'm sure that's how you know, Leah spent a lot of her life is feeling second best. But we saw at the end of the last chapter and if you flip back with me to chapter 29, look at verse 31. It says, now the Lord saw that Leah, Leah was the oldest of the two, was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Each of these children's names, and by the way, this starts the family, the family of the 12 patriarchs or the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this whole chapter is the beginning of that promise. And so far, you know, what we've been seeing is that God's made this promise, an incredible promise, to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. He repeats the promise to Isaac a little later and then to Jacob. And the promise is that you're going to have these descendants and these descendants will be innumerable. They will be like the stars of the sky if you can count them or the dust of the earth or the sand on the seashore. You're going to have so many descendants, but at this point, this family hasn't realized those promises. This family is relatively small. Abraham and Sarah have to wait a long time and then fi finally Isaac is born. Then Isaac and Rebekah have just a couple of boys, right? And we know who they are. They're Jacob and Esau. 
And then Jacob goes off and, and he now has had four sons born to him through Leah. But this is by no means a huge family. I mean, if you're sitting here wondering about the realization of God's promises, this is just kind of a really a handful of people. This is not the stars of the sky, uncountable numbers. But through all of this, this is going to be the beginning, if you will, of that promise. And it's going to come through 12 sons. And this family is going to change the world. But I want you to have some hope tonight that this family is a messed up family. <laughs> this family could star on Jerry Springer. <laughs> this family could be on one of those talk shows because it gets ugly and it gets ugly fast. And there's infighting and all this stuff that happens. And at the root of the problems is that they didn't do things God's way. And what's happened is there's a polygamous relationship. And this comes up, you know, we see stories in the Bible and we wonder, well, why does God allow these men, these patriarchs, to have multiple wives? I thought that was a no-no in the Bible. Oh, it is. Genesis 2.24 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. Right out of the gate, the Bible tells you that what God wants is heterosexual monogamy in the context of marriage. He wants two people to be married, not to be intimate until they're married, and to be faithful to one another for their whole lifetime. But the Bible is also a very real book. And the Bible tells the truth. Uh, it gives you, as it's been said in the past, warts and all. So the Bible's not phony about even some of its greatest uh, actors, if you will, in the drama of redemption. And I'm not saying that the Bible's made up because the Bible is a real story, but the Bible unfolds in a drama before us and we can relate to it so much because these people are so much like us. And that's part of what gives us the hope that God can even use us. <laughs> After we've made our share of mistakes and me Definitely included. You know, Paul said, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, and many of us can relate to those words. But God saw, God saw that Leah was unloved, and she started uh, bearing sons to Jacob. And, you know, the first time she bears a son, she says, Well, now he'll love me. Then she conceived again, look at 29:33, and bore a son uh, uh, because the Lord had heard I am, that I am unloved. And so certainly, you know, the first son hasn't changed the situation. He has therefore given me this son also. And so she named him Simeon. The word Simeon comes from the root Shema. And the Hebrew prayer is called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The prayer is called the Shema because the first word of the prayer is hear. And you might remember that when Jesus was born, there was a man named Simeon in the temple. And Simeon had had a promise from the Lord, from the Spirit, that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And his name means hearken or to hear. And Simeon was able to hold the Christ child, do you remember? And he says, now I can depart in peace for my eyes have seen thy salvation. And then he goes and he breaks into this prophecy about the promises of God that God is faithful. And so the second born, the first born Reuben is behold, a son. The second born is Simeon, and it means God has heard. God sees, he hears. And she conceived 34, 20, chapter 29, and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become 
attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And every time you see one of these verses, within the verse is the meaning of the name. Levi means attached. And so Levi becomes the Levitical line, the priestly line, the line from which Moses and Aaron come. And we can see that in the book of Exodus. And then finally she conceived a fourth son, end of chapter 29, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. This is how we ended last week. And therefore she named him Judah, and she stopped bearing. Now only for the time being, because she's going to bear more children. But the fourth son, Judah, means praise, right there in the setting, I will praise the Lord. And Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And I, I pointed out last Wednesday that from the unloved woman, the older of the two, but certainly the unloved from Jacob or Israel, comes the Messiah. It is interesting, an interesting thought, I'll let you chew on this, that from the unloved wife, the one that Israel doesn't love, comes the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes on the scene in the very history in which we are now living some 2,000 years ago, the Messiah comes, and sadly, he is largely unloved by Israel. You know, Israel is called the bride of uh, Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament. And yet, we can see this picture where, you know, they, he came to his own and his own would not receive him. But John goes on, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. In fact, many times in the book of Acts we can see that, you know, the, they start in the synagogue and they say, if you won't listen, then we're going to go to the Gentiles. And there's a great Gentile response to the gospel Unfortunately, because a lot of Jewish people did not receive the Lord. And Rachel saw all this. You know, can you imagine? You're the, you're the pretty one. Maybe you've been favored your whole life. But now you watch your older sister pregnant four times. And by the way, she's getting pregnant from your husband because this is a polygamous marriage. And so each time, you know, that uh, Leah has the, the showing of pregnancy, she has the big tummy and Rachel walks by the tent, you have to imagine that there's a little bit of uh, muttering going on, a little bit of nasty looks. Maybe some of that, right? Not, they're not happy. I believe that there was a lot of tension in the tent of Jacob. Now last week I told you I think the guy was in regular counseling. And I, and I think that chapter 30 will simply affirm that idea. I think there was a lot of pressure on this guy. You know, uh, we saw him a few chapters ago between a rock and a hard place because he was running from Esau who wanted to kill him and he was heading to Laban and he slept on that rock pillow and anointed it with oil and all of that stuff. And it might have been easier for Jacob to sleep on a rock pillow than, be, than to be between two sisters who were mad at each other. <laughs> and, and this is intense stuff. This is who's having babies and which one does he love and, you know, etc. Who's going to get his attention? And while it is true that he loved Rachel, and Rachel was the one he had promised to give the seven years for, and then he gives 14 years for her. But you can imagine that each time a baby was born to Leah, his attention was turned to Leah and that child. And Rachel was looking on. And Rachel was getting more frustrated and more frustrated and more frustrated. And she would be with him and would not be able to uh, conceive. And the Lord was behind this all. And Jacob 
senses that. Jacob knows that God's doing something because Jacob's already experienced some personal lessons and he kind of knows that God has a way of growing us even through pain. Amen? Sometimes God will do something. He'll make us wait. He'll say, you've been the favored one for a while. Well, maybe now I'm going to teach you some lessons of growth. Maybe Rachel was a bit spoiled. Maybe she was a bit stuck on herself. We don't know. But God, God gives favor to Leah, but not to Rachel. And Rachel, you know, I take verse 1 that she probably said this more than once to Jacob. I think she probably said, Give me children or else I die! And I'm sure it, it was, you know, dinner time conversation and stuff. And I could see the perplexed look on Jacob's face. Like, what do you want me to do, woman? <laughs> you know? I'm sorry, but things are just not working out. And, you know, four babies are born to Leah. And even though Leah was fruitful, Leah was lonely. And there's a lot of women in our world tonight that, you know, maybe they have material possessions. Maybe they have some tangible blessings, but they're lonely. Leah was a lonely woman. I could imagine her, even after she's, you know, come to this fourth pregnancy, coming to the realization that it doesn't matter how many kids I have for this guy, he's never going to love me the way he loves her. She was fruitful, but lonely. And maybe that's you tonight. You know, maybe you've experienced some blessings. Maybe, you know, for some people, they've had a spouse leave them. Some people are married, but for all intents and purposes, they're still lonely because there's been a break in that relationship. And Leah is a picture of a woman who's unloved. She's in pain, and she's lonely. And finally, when the fourth one is born, she's made a decision in her life. And his name is Judah, and she's just, she doesn't even say, you know, okay, I hope he'll love me this time on baby number four. She just says, I'm just going to praise the Lord. My focus is going to shift from Jacob to Jehovah. My focus is going to shift from him to God. Now her circumstances doesn't, don't change, but God was changing Leah. And finally on the fourth child, she says, I'm just going to praise the Lord. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, right? Where does he write that from? Prison. That's Philippians 4 verse 3. He goes on to say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord and the, and the peace of God which, what, surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. And whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, he goes down this list of all these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. She shifted her focus. And that's the lesson in Leah. Leah just decided that she was going to focus on God instead of hoping that someone would love her who was never going to love her the way she deserved to be loved. And I find that sad. And I don't know if you, when you peel back the, the layers here and you, you expose the story, I don't know if this was Leah's idea. I don't know if she was in cahoots with her father and when he said, we're gonna fool Jacob and it's gonna be you instead of Rachel, I don't know if Leah was part of the plan or if she just bowed to the will of her father. I don't know how much she had to do with this. But she certainly had to live with it. And that's one thing that happens to us as we make decisions. And if Leah was in cahoots with her father, then we could assume that, you know, God was allowing that to happen as well. 
God often lets us live with the consequences of our choices, but the beauty of Leah's story is that through Leah's line or Leah's blood would flow through the lines of Levi and Judah. In other words, Leah's blood is in the blood of the Messiah because from the tribe of Judah comes the Messiah. And so, did she know that at the moment? No. God is always painting a picture, doing things on multiple layers that we can't see. So, you know, when you are struggling with stuff and maybe the answer is not right in front of your face, be of good cheer. Many people in the Bible stories didn't know the big story. They didn't always realize everything. But Isaiah 61.3 says that God will grant uh, to those who mourn in Zion, he will give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. God gives us beauty for ashes. Ashes are a sign of mourning in the Old Testament and in the New. And Jesus gives us that oil of gladness. But for Rachel, as we shift away from Leah to Rachel, Rachel's barrenness was devastating. She was beautiful, but barren. And I'm sure we've met our share of beautiful people in the world, and they look very pretty until they open their mouth. You ever met somebody like this? You're like, wow, that person's stunningly beautiful. And then they say something, and you're like, oh, my goodness. What happened? It would have been better had they stayed silent. But, but Rachel was, she was a knockout. You know, we're told she was beautiful in form and face, but beauty doesn't mean everything, and she's beautiful but barren. And you know, there's a lot of people in our culture, I'll just make this application, and I think you all know it, that beauty is everything to this culture. So you got to look beautiful, you got to keep up with everything, the magazine covers, and so forth. But do you know that behind a lot of those beauties that we see, they're barren they're empty on the inside. They don't have true life. And so you can, and look, I, I believe you should do your best to stay in shape and look as good as you can. Don't get me wrong. But I am saying that's not where life is found. And so there's going to be many, many lessons that come out here. And, and, you know, maybe for the umpteenth time, she said, give me children or else I die. And she was driven by jealousy. When Rachel saw chapter 30, verse 1, and don't worry, we're not going to do the whole chapter tonight. When <laughs> Somebody was saying, man, he's, it's, he's telling the introduction. It's, this is verse 1. And if you've been here for a while, that shouldn't shock you at all. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore no children, she became what? Jealous of her sister. Turn to the book of James for a second. James chapter 3. James is shoe leather doctrine. Uh, James just gets in your face and tells you like it is, whether you like it or not. So <laughs> here's the book of James. Back of the New Testament, the book of James. What does, joy do, uh, what does uh, jealousy do to us? One of the things I think it does is steal our joy. But j this is James 3.13. There's other things that jealousy does. James 3.13. Who among you is wise? James 3.13. And understanding, let him show by his good behavior his deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. Have you noticed that wisdom is gentle? I don't know if you saw the vice presidential debate last night, but Mike Pence was amazingly patient last night. 
In fact, I will make a confession. I was on my treadmill yelling at the television (laughs) while Mike Pence stayed calm and seemed to be in the spirit. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So there's hope for all of us. Anyway, but if you have, verse 14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, mentioned in verse 14, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And you could just write in your Bible there, Genesis chapter 30. Because that's what's going on in Genesis 30, is that there's disorder and every evil thing you could imagine springs from the platform of jealousy. Back to Genesis Chapter 30, I'll tell you what, jealous people are ugly people. And we've all probably been there before, but when we're jealous of other people, it's, we lack contentment of where we are with the Lord. And so, um, again, this chapter is hopeful, but Jacob's response, uh, chapter 30, verse 2, back in Genesis, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, here's his response to give me children or else I die. He said, am I in the place of God? Have you guys ever said that before? If you have a New Living Translation, he said, am I God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I think that's why I think implied here is that she said this more than once and I think that finally Jacob just went, oi, hey, woman, I'm not God. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what vitamins you need to take. But look, you're not having children. What do you want me to do? I'm not God. And Rachel was thinking, she's keeping score. Leah four, Rachel nothing. At the end of the bottom of the fourth inning, it's, yeah, it's ugly. So he says, look, I don't know what to tell you. But I think in Jacob's response, he's saying, You might want to get before the Lord and find out what's going on. You might want to do what Isaac did for Rebecca and pray. You might want to find out if there's something behind the barrenness. Now, when we're going through times of barrenness, it's good for us to seek the Lord. James 1 tells us, you know, we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials because the testing of our faith produces endurance and so forth, but it goes on to say, if any of us lacks wisdom, James 1.5, let us, what? Let him ask of God, who will give wisdom. Do you know, James 1.5 is actually a verse in the context of the testing of our faith. So when we're going through a test, what James 1.5 is teaching us is that we should ask God, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Now, let me, let me be clear. I don't believe that everything you're going through has some sort of spiritual lesson in it. I think we live in a fallen world and sometimes just things happen. I don't ask the question when I get a flat tire, I don't know what's going on, Lord. <laughs> the devil flattened my tire. <laughs> you know, get behind me. Say, I don't do that. Okay, sometimes I just say, wow, I have a flat. A <laughs> Bummer. You know, the last time I got a flat, I didn't even pray. I just called AAA. (laughs) Maybe that's my own personal shortcoming. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, anyway, we need to be careful with that. 
And so here's what Rachel's going to do. Desperate times, desperate measures, all that. Verse 3, chapter 30. She said, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her. Sleep with her. That she may bear on my knees. If you're wondering what that means, if you have a New American Standard, it means on my behalf. That through her I too may have children. So here's what happens. Rachel has a maid. Her name is Bilhah. I don't know where she got that name, but anyway, we won't go there tonight. But if you have the NIV, it says, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife. This is the idea of the concubine now or the proxy wife. In ancient days when a woman could not bear children for her husband. They would bring often a maidservant in. And this was kind of just the cultural way they did things. And she would bear children for her mistress or the one she served. And so some people might say that this is the marital ethics of Mesopotamia, meaning that this is what the pagans did and the Jewish people just seemed to follow the pagan lead. And I will comment and say that whenever we're following the world's lead on marital ethics, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. But anyway, she gave her maid Bilhah as a wife, and you have to imagine, you know, with no television, no internet, I would venture a guess, a strong speculation, that Rachel was familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah. And, you know, they were getting on in years, and so finally Sarah said, hey, take my maid who? Hagar. Because, you know, we got <laughs> we got to help out God here. And who was born through that union? Ishmael. And we've been able to track a lot of problems in the Middle East from that, that uh, fleshly venture. And so she gave her maid, Bilhah, as his wife. And Jacob knew the story. I mean, this was his grandpa. Abraham was Jacob's grandpa. He knew the story. He knew. I'm sure Abraham said, Oi, if there's one thing I can share with you, this is it. Don't get ahead of God. Don't do things. Wait on God. Wait on God. You know, grandpa can tell you that all day long, but it seems like grandsons often need to learn the hard way. And so Jacob, the great patriarch, uh, slept with her. That's what the Bible says. You know, that's what Abraham did as well. Uh, Hagar, go ahead and, you know, be with Hagar. And Abraham, the great man of faith, said, okay. <laughs> and Jacob did the same thing. And now we have another woman in the mix. Do you know that the 12 tribes of Israel come from four different women? <laughs> Two of which are maidservants who are brought in to bear the children. Wow. I told you, this is the stuff of talk shows. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, verse 6, God has vindicated me. You could put judged me, but I'll explain in a moment what that means. God has vindicated me, verse 6, and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan, that is, in the tribe of Dan. And Dan, in Hebrew, means judge so the word judge in hebrew thought doesn't mean someone who condemns you it could have that idea but the main idea of a judge in hebrew thought we have a book called the book of judges right 
a judge was a protector and a defender of orphans and widows. It's used in that kind of setting in the Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, one writer says, uh, the biblical Hebrew of, of a judge is different from what we think of today. A judge was not the person who condemned. The judge was the one who protected. God says that he is the judge of orphans and widows. In the Hebrew word picture, it shows that the judge is the door or judge is the door of life. When you let God's word judge you, you walk through doors of life instead of doors of death or doors of stumbling. Are you with me? If you let God's word make the call in your life, if you let him judge between what's good and what's evil, you will walk through doors of life instead of dark doors. Everybody with me? That's the Hebrew word here. And so in this context, Rachel's saying, God's vindicated me. He's, he's, he's made things right. I couldn't have children, but I gave my maid, and, and things are good. But things weren't good, because I'm not sure it was God that was vindicating her at all. And later on, the tribe of Dan, there's a prophecy spoken over that tribe. Go to chapter 49, skip ahead for a second, 49.16. And this prophecy, if I recollect it correctly, is coming from Jacob when he's old. 49.16, here's what he says of Dan. 49.16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be, 49.17, a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. Interesting. Prophecy about Dan, back to, the, to chapter 30 of Genesis. And so uh, you can look up the tribe of Dan. There's a little bit of history that you can find in Bible dictionaries and so forth. But what you can know for sure is that Dan became the northernmost tribe when it was all said and done. And Dan was the closest to the Syrian border. And the history of Israel is that Dan was the most influenced by the pagan practices. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you, you'll get a chance to go up uh, on the border of Syria and Israel, which, you know, hopefully things will calm down. But, and you can actually see altars, high places that were built apparently by the tribe of Dan in Israel. And they embraced or imbibed the pagan practices of their neighbors because they were so close to these other countries. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, 30, verse 7, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son, so two come from her. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, here's where my title comes from, the wrestling sisters. With mighty, wrestle, mighty wrestlings or struggle, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Naphtali literally means wrestlings or my struggle. Now, who was Rachel struggling against? Her sister. But if I'm calculating the score correctly, she's still losing. <laughs> Leah's had more children come and through her body than Rachel. But Rachel feels good about what's happened, so she's kind of like, aha, Bilha, yeah. <laughs> I got two kids now, Dan and Naphtali. Now, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah. Oh, you thought, you thought it was over, right? You thought, oh, it can't get any uglier, right? And he gave her to Jacob as a wife, as wife. You know, you'd think the sisters were tired by now. Somebody would wave a white flag. But Leah now responded, oh, yeah, you have Bilhah. Well, I have Zilpah. Ha! 
And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, How fortunate! So she named him Gad. Now, if you look in your Bible dictionaries or lexicons, Gad, some people say it means troop, but I think it means good fortune, because every time you're going to see a name, it's actually, the name is actually defined within the verse. So Leah, you know, she gives Zilpah to Jacob. Now there's four women involved. Now another son is born, and she just does it because her sister did it with her maid, and she names the kid Gad, which means good fortune. I win again over my poor, infertile sister. Sad. You know, I don't know if you guys were around when praise choruses were happening, but this is the origin of the praise chorus. He has made me gad. He has made me gad. I will rejoice for he has made me gad. What? You guys don't believe that? <laughs> now, I will tell you this. <laughs> Sometimes in the late afternoon, when I'm studying these passages, I just come up with these things. I cannot tell you how it happens, but I share it with some of the office workers. I say, get this, you guys. Don't you think this is funny? And they give me about the same response as you just gave. Sarah just said it was a speech impediment. Oh, yeah. Anyway. So Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, Happy am I, for women will call me happy. Now she's fortunate and happy. And so she named him Asher. And Asher does mean happy. And she started to break into a more contemporary song. Yes, I'm happy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but was she happy? I mean, when you get the best of someone and you can kind of Kind of put it in their face. Yeah, yeah, how about that one? Zilpa, Bilha, Zilpa. <laughs> you feel good after that? You go home? Fortunate, happy, happy, fortunate. Then people say, what did you accomplish there? I, <laughs> I don't know, but I got the best of her. That's what, one thing I know. And I'm happy. Oh, you are. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, maybe, I don't know, my guess, four or five years old, Reuben, went out and found mandrakes, I'll explain, in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Now, Reuben's the firstborn, and Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, at first when I read this, I thought it was just a manly rake. <laughs> but... <laughs> That was apparently the wrong interpretation. <laughs> a manrake actually is commonly found in Palestine and it ripens during the wheat harvest. And just to cut to the chase, here's what it is. The manrake is a small plant with a root that can be pinched into the shape of a man and with a small orange-colored berry-like fruit that can be eaten. For thousands of years from ancient times until relatively modern times, it was regarded as an aphrodisiac or an inducer of fertility. And this belief, though erroneous, alone explains the interest that both Leah and Rachel show in the child Reuben's discovery. So all of a sudden, as the story unfolds, Reuben just comes across this plant that has a history, at least it's wrongly thought, but it's supposed to help women become fertile. And Reuben found it. Mommy, mommy, look what I found. I found a plant. It's pretty. 
And Leah went, oh, you don't know what you found. It's the super vitamin that helps us women be fruitful. You found the man rigs. Some people, uh, one writer actually said that the word for man rigs is close to the word for love in Hebrew. And in the ancient times, they called them love apples. Not kidding. And so I think when Leah saw Rachel, she said, how about those apples? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. That was the one I thought was the worst. And you guys... Verse 15, as we regather. <laughs> she said to her, it's a small matter for you to take my husband. So let's go back. Let's reset. So Rachel, verse 14, said to Leah, give me some of your son's man rigs. Because, you know, Leah still got, I mean, Rachel still got the problem, right? She's had two sons through the maid, but she hasn't been able to bear any children. So she thinks, ah, we found the solution. She said to her, Here's the response. Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's man rakes also? <laughs> so Rachel said, therefore, now Rachel seems to be in charge here, and this is the reality of it. So basically, Rachel sees the discovery of Reuben. Reuben's Leah's firstborn, but she knows there's something valuable here, so she says, I, I want that. And she goes, no, you, Leah says, no, you're not going to have that. You've already taken my husband. Now she's claiming that Jacob's her husband, and we know everything behind that. And now you want the man rakes too? Uh-uh, ain't gonna happen, sister. <laughs> and so Rachel seems to be in charge because she's the more favored one in charge of the tent. Remember, Leah's still in second place. And so she, she throws this out. Rachel says, okay, you may lie with, uh, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's man rakes. You give me the plants, the aphrodisiac, what will help me be fertile, I'll let him be with you tonight. Wow. Folks, we're reading the Bible. <laughs> Isn't this something? It's, yeah, it is. So here's Jacob, right? <laughs> Walking through the field. <laughs> I'm going to go see Rachel. <laughs> Jacob came in from the field. In the evening, then Leah went out to meet him, and she said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's man rigs. <laughs> can, can you imagine me and Jacob? Like, what? C could you back up a second, woman? Yeah, well, Reuben found the man rigs. <laughs> she said, How about those apples? <laughs> Fired back. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> long story short, you're with me tonight, buddy. Jacob's like, all right. <laughs> so, so, you know, Jacob, talk about a guy that just goes with the flow, right? So look at the end of verse 16. So, so Jacob said, all right. So he was with her that night. Again, I'm reading the Bible. And God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So they were together that night. She conceived, and God was behind it. 
And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband, so she named him Issachar. Issachar, another one of the tribes of Israel, means reward. But Leah seems confused because I don't think that this is necessarily all about what God's doing, although I will say this, it does say that God gave heed to Leah. So even in the midst of the mess, verse 17 does say that God heeded it. So there was a negotiation, but God still, he gave heed. I take it that she was praying. But she, her conclusion is that God has paid me back for what I did, that I was able to pull this off. And Issachar comes, his name means reward. And Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me. Maybe now he'll be with me. She seems to be reverting back. She had grown some, but now she says, because I've given him six sons, I've borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulun, Zebulun, and his name means honor. But look, Leah, as we watch this story, it doesn't matter if you've given him one, two, four, or six. He's always going to love Rachel more than you. But you can see the desperation she has. Maybe he'll want to be with me now. Maybe he'll pay more attention to me. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah, the one daughter in the group. And Dinah is a uh, female form of the name Dan, which also means judge. And then, as we wind down for tonight, because we can't take much more, God remembered Rachel. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. Now apparently Rachel has now learned to rely upon God because he gave heed to her. And so instead of manipulating, she's starting to pray. And I'll just park here for a second and say to you that this is one of the great discoveries in the Christian life when we stop manipulating and start praying. When we stop forcing our way through things and start paying attention to the God who runs the universe. And so he opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. All these years she felt this stigma, this jealousy. And she cried out to God and God blessed her. She conceived, she bore a son and she named him, would you notice verse 24, Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. Now Joseph means let him add. So again, the name of the, is explained in the verse, give me another, is the name of Joseph, or let him add. So Joseph technically means Jehovah or Yahweh has added, and a final son will be added, and his name will be the 12th uh, tribe, and his name is Benjamin. And he, his birth will be recorded in a chapter I'm going to take you to as we close. Rachel's reproach finally is removed. Now to Genesis 35. Now I want to just read something from my notes and we'll take a peek at this and this will be a preview of what's ahead. Despite all the ugliness, jealousy, manipulation, rivalry, competitions, love potions, God's grace was sprinkled on everything. God would add, Rachel would have another son added and his name would be Benjamin. Interestingly enough, Rachel would die giving birth to Jacob's 12th son. But God was faithful to provide that son nonetheless. For he hears and he knows our pain and he knows our shortcomings. And through all of this, he was going to send through all this mess. The Messiah was coming through this family. The Savior was coming. And Joseph, 
who is born to Rachel. At the end of this episode, this ugly episode, Joseph will be the primary figure in the latter part of the book of Genesis. If you've ever studied the book, you know that. And Joseph will become a type of Jesus Christ. And it is quite amazing to me that through all the messes that we can create in life, all the manipulation, all the things that we do wrong, still God is faithful. This is the family from which Israel comes and the Messiah ultimately comes. And as we look with that in mind to Genesis 35, let me just point out something ahead of us. 35.9, now God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram. And he blessed him. And God said, Genesis 35, 10, to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. And God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a libation on it. He also poured out oil on it. And Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now skip down to 35 and look at verse, chapter 35, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, about 11 miles north of Jerusalem. And, they, and when there was still some distance to go to Afrath or Afratha, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. Now, you guys know that uh, there's a combination used with the name Afrath and Bethlehem is, is often called Bethlehem Afratha. The combination, Bethlehem means house of bread, bait with lachem, and Afratha means fruitful. So Bethlehem how do we know Bethlehem? Because that's where Jesus was what? He was born in a house of bread, in a place of fruitfulness. Now, take a look. So Rachel, when they had come to this area of Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. God has added, Ben means son, Ben means the life of the family. The family's continued through this son. And it came about, notice this is spoken of Rachel, as her soul was departing. You have a soul, and by the way, it departs when you die. And it goes to one of two places, either to be with God, or you end up in Hades awaiting the second death if you don't know Christ. And she named him Ben-Oni. Ben means son, Oni means sorrow. So Rachel, in her dying moments, is about to call this boy son of my sorrow. But his father called him Ben-Janin, literally means son of the right hand, and he was indeed a favorite son. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Afrath, that is what? Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. We'll talk about that when we get there. Here's what I'd like to say to you as we conclude. Do you know in a little town called Bethlehem, some major things happened? And one of the first reasons why Bethlehem was well known to the Jewish people was it was known as a place of death. 
Do you know why it was known as a place of death? Because it was where Rachel died and where her tomb was to that day. And in the place of death, known for death, the death of the matriarch of the family of Israel, the favored one, the one from whom these prominent tribes come, do you know that right in Bethlehem, a place known for death in Israel, came the author of life? God is the God of turnarounds. David is anointed in Bethlehem. Uh, the book of Ruth takes place in Bethlehem. The kinsman redeemer is foreshadowed there. And here's the lessons. I taught it a couple of Christmases ago. It's this, where there was death, God brings life. Where there was a lack of a leader, God brings a king. And where there was need of redemption, God brings a redeemer. All in Bethlehem, all weaving together the beauty of this tapestry that God takes all the messes that we make and still brings forth the Messiah. Amen? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Man, this story is, it seems like we could just have watched a TV show tonight and none of this would surprise us, but it's the Bible and it's actually the family of Israel and it's amazing. Your grace is amazing, Lord. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you that your grace is still overarching all the mess here and thank you that through this family would come the Redeemer, the Giver of life, our King, our Leader, our High Priest, everything is found in Jesus. And thank you that he was born in Bethlehem even as Rachel died. She, uh, there's a picture of life coming and we thank you that for that, Lord. And just with your head and heart bowed tonight as you've gone through this study tonight and we've been able to laugh together a little bit and maybe even have some, some sobering moments. What's the Lord saying to you tonight? What does he want you to lay down? What does he want you to stop manipulating and praying about? What mess can you just put before him tonight and ask him still to bring beauty for ashes? What hope do you find that even the Redeemer comes forth from this family lord only you know what every heart needs tonight you know those who don't know you yet you know those who need to come back home those who have been away from the word in their bibles for a, quite a long time if that's you i would do some business right now with your creator and your savior and your lord and if you're not a christian it's something like this lord jesus pray it if it's you come into my life forgive me of my sin thank you that you sent jesus Thank you that he gives hope to the hopeless. Life where there's barrenness. I, I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin and receive him. Change me, God. Maybe you need to rededicate your life and your prayer would be similar. You can, you can share the words with your Father. Lord, change me. Take the, the broken places of my life and mend them together. And Lord, for this wonderful congregation. May you strengthen their faith. May you encourage them in the Holy Spirit. May you touch areas of their life where they need healing tonight, and may you bless them richly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?